and welcome to the Swift Coders Podcast, where each week we interview an amazing Swift developer about their experience with Apple's new open source programming language. We hear their stories, learn their tips and tricks, and try to leave you feeling inspired and empowered on your Swift Coder journey. I'm your host, Garrick, and today's guest is Christoph Zablowski. Christoph is an iOS consultant with clients such as the New York Times. He's also the creator of multiple Apple essential apps like Foldify, and he's also the author of many open source projects, including Sorcery and Objective-C Playgrounds. Welcome to the show, Christoph. Thank you for having me. My pleasure. How's it going? Uh, it's good. It's pretty late here. It's 7 p.m. now, but uh, I woke up very early today, but I'm excited to hear your questions and share my experiences. Yeah, and I'm excited to uh, to participate in that as well. So where are you? You said it's 7 p.m.? Yes, I'm in Warsaw in Poland, so uh, 7.20 to be exact. It's right. pretty dark behind behind the window, so I've good time. To, I've never been to Poland before. I've never been to Europe. I'm hoping to go to Europe this summer. Uh, you should visit uh, Mobile Central Europe. It's a conference that we are organizing in Warsaw, and... It actually goes uh, not just mobile, but also about design and product. And this year, we actually have a positive technology as a team, which will be very interesting. So, so there's an excuse for you to visit. Definitely. It's called Mobile Central Europe? Yes. MT. Um, I'd have to check. I don't remember exact date right now. It's in the summer or like our summer? Oh, it's uh, May, I think. Oh, Something nice. Like that. Okay. Nice. Yeah. Cool. Is that like the first one? Have you participated before? Or? Uh, so I spoke at it twice and I have been helping them uh, get other speakers last year and this year as well. Nice. Cool. All right. So I want to learn about Christoph. I want to learn about who you are and how you got to where you are. But before we do, I want to learn what you, know, what you are up to right now. So you're an iOS consultant. Um, mm -hmm. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Like, what are what are you doing on a day to day? Are you able to tell us that? Like, what your actual work is um, these days? Sure, sure. So uh, right now, my main client is the New York Times, and I have been working with them since last May, and we are working on the main application. My team is working on the main application. Our team is, I think, now eight people, and I have been uh, helping design the sec well the section front, which is our basically our front end of the application. And we are writing it in Swift, and it's pure Swift uh, with test-driven development as well, which is rare. And other than that, uh, companies hire me usually to help their establish their teams, establish good quality um, guidelines, because I have been talking about this stuff, and uh, I have been programming for 20 years now. So, uh, basically like an expert, someone you hire uh, to help you get started or get your product moving quickly. That's kind of my role. And so the eight team members, are they, they work for like New York Times or they're your team? Like you have a team? No, 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 they work for New York Times. Yeah, I'm uh, basically a freelancer. I contract with different companies and help them uh, get to their business goals. Okay, yeah. So like they have their team and you're kind of like helping them get their process in place and like getting the app to be maintainable and all that kind of stuff. Yes. So this app is actually we, well, I joined and uh, my former colleague from Mashable, because that's the company we worked before, 
and uh, we joined the New York Times team and we are ro working on the app basically from scratch. So the, the whole app is uh, being rewritten in Swift. Wow. Wow. We were doing a rewrite. We were doing like a reactive. We were doing functional. We were doing test driven. Mm -hmm. um, so you basically have you know green pastures to just do whatever you want. I'd be really curious. Have you written about like the architecture that you're doing uh, with that application? Yeah, so we are doing uh, model view model as the main pattern, the UI pattern, because that's the, like MVVM. That's the UI. Yeah, yeah, MVVM. And uh, we are using flow coordinators, oh, which wow. are, I think, very important. Um, because otherwise, like, so MVVM is not an architecture pattern, it's a UI architecture pattern, and that's a significant difference. And uh, so you can use, uh, like, there are so many different approaches to programming and architecture. But I think what's important, what's missing from a lot of them is how do you, like, especially the UI, how do you coordinate between different screens? Right. And when you have one view controller pushing another view controller, that never ends up very well. Right. For the product, at least. Wait, so I'm I'm wondering, does Chris does Dzomback? Does he work there at New York Times? Yes. Yeah. Okay, because I'm listening to uh, Fatal Error, and he's talking mm -hmm. about MVVM and flow coordinators. Sarush Kanlu calls them presenting coordinators. I guess it was kind of like his yeah. idea or whatever. Okay, wow. So I'm really curious to see how you're doing MVVM with the flow coordinators because I've been doing MVVM and then I've been trying to do the flow coordinator thing, but mm -hmm. it, it, to me, it, it hasn't. I haven't figured it out yet to how to like how to use both of those because um, mm -hmm. it seems to me like the view controller wants to own the view model, but the flow coordinator would want to own the view controller. And so like, I'm sort of like, kind of, how do I, anyways, we can maybe, if you have a, like an article or something, uh, yes, you've I written do. or I would, okay. So I'm going to make sure I get that article, um, uh, and have that. I definitely want to read that and I'll, uh, I'll link to it. So that, man, that's cool. It sounds like you're doing cool, really awesome things. What are you doing for testing? Are you using XC test or are you using a quick and nimble? So uh, when I joined, we were using XCTest, but I convinced people to use uh, Quick and Nimble, mostly because it makes it easier. Like, so I actually have a lot of experience with testing. I did it for other products before, but a lot of people on our team didn't. So uh, it's easier to write readable and maintainable tests with Quick and RSpec. And so we decided as a team that uh, we're going to try it. And we written more than... Uh, 2,000 tests already. Wow. So it's been working pretty well. And you guys are doing like, uh, at least trying to always do like pure test driven, like where you really are writing tests first? Um, I am. Wow. <laughs> I'm wow at wow. least like 90% of time I'm, I'm trying to. When I work on UI, it's a little different because I use some of my own technology to be more efficient there. But when it comes to like the logic, view models, all this stuff, yeah, testing is very important for me. Wow. And then how about like a view-based testing or like testing the UI? Are you just doing um, like automated UI like with the built-in Xcode features or using something like FB snapshot test case or whatever? Yes. It's so uh, both. So I introduced when I joined, um, I didn't want us to test layouts by hand. So I didn't want us to test frames of views because that's, very fragile tests, they are not very maintainable and they are not worth the effort because what happens, like if you have those kind of tests, so you have uh, 
you create a view and then you test whether the label is at this position. So when you get a feature request to change the layout, what you do, right? You go to the code, you change the, um, the placement, and then you run the test, you see the failing test. So what will people do? They will just copy the expected value and put it as the, as the value in the test, which doesn't really do anything. It doesn't validate whether it's working correctly or not. So when I joined, I said that we should be using snapshot tests, and I wrote a nice abstraction on top of FB, FB snapshot that basically uh, with a single line, so you basically just say snapshot, then you in the uh, brackets, you say the name of the class that we are gonna instantiate, and then you just pass in a view model. And what happens is that uh, specific cell for that specific view model will be recorded in different sizes. So for iPad, for iPhone, uh, like the regular size, the compact size, different teams. So our app has the dark team, the light team, and uh, we can also add other variations like the uh, dynamic type. So very large text or small text. And basically that single line records like um, probably like eight screenshots. So, so it's what, extremely easy for the team to add new snapshots. What's your uh, wrapper? Is that open source? Uh, that's not open source, but I showed how it looks. Like I wrote, wrote an article a couple days ago about testing. And yeah, I, actually, I think I just saw that today, testing iOS apps. So I'll definitely yes. link to that. Okay, cool. So, so you explain how you did it, how you created the wrapper in that article. Oh, I, explain, I show it how it looks. Okay. I mean, okay, the cool. wrapper itself is not complicated, but I talk about the principles behind uh, maintainable testing and how to approach it from the practical perspective. Okay, awesome. Yeah, I haven't used the FB snapshot, but um, I want to I want to try it and then maybe uh, work with it. So I'm glad to hear you're using it, and maybe one day I'm going to be picking your brain. Okay, so <laughs> wow, it's like only been ten minutes, and I'm just already super excited because like I'm just so happy to hear like this is the kind of programming I love to do, and I'm and I'm super new to it. But when I hear there's people out there doing it, especially someone you know, like you, like when we'll get into all the stuff you've done, it's just, it's really refreshing. It makes me excited. It makes me feel like, you know, I'm on the right track, but okay. What I want to do now is now that we have a good idea of, you know, who you are, what you're up to right now, I really want to go back and to the beginning of Christoph and, and learn about you. So, <laughs> uh, tell us a little bit about, you know, you know, where you come from, like, you know, and, and when you started programming. Sure. So, uh, I was born in Poland and, uh, in Bydgoszcz, actually, which is uh, a different city that I live in right now, because right now I'm in the capital. And uh, I started programming when I was eight years old, so very young. And I did it because my brother is seven years older and he was playing with Commodore. That was that long ago that Commodore was the best PC you could get. <laughs> Not a PC, really. Um, so I saw him playing with it. I think he was programming something basic. And I really wanted to also be able to do stuff like this. So I started looking into it. I didn't have internet back in the day. I, I don't think I have had internet for a couple of years when I started programming. I didn't really have any books available. I think I had one book that my brother bought uh, that I started reading. But I basically started with uh, QBasic, which was uh, a very obscure language. Most probably most of the listeners won't even know how it looked like. But you had to place uh, code on specific lines, like the numbers of the number of the line mattered, because you would use go to instructions to jump to a different section of the code. So oh, wow. people would leave a lot of blank spaces just so they can add more uh, code later on if they need it. 
so uh, that's how I started. I think the first, one of the first thing I did is I just made a map that would hang your computer and it pretended to be a virus, basically create infinite loop and I send it to some friends. <laughs> uh, and after that, I, uh, I started uh, Pascal, uh, the Turbo Pascal. And that was still on the, like, I didn't have Windows. That was DOS, right? So you had the uh, Norton Commander or whatever the tool name was, it, like the Finder alternative, like in the old days. And uh, I started doing games. That's, that's how I got into it. I really wanted to create my own games. And I did it for many, many years, I think. Um, up until switching to mobile, I was doing 3D game engines. I wrote my own UI libraries. So uh, when I was still in uh, primary school, I wrote my first UI library. So like uh, reproduce all the UI controls that you see on Mac or Windows. By, back then it was Windows. And uh, the only abstraction that I had was drawing triangles. That was the highest level of abstraction available for me. Uh, so that was kind of interesting. Uh, I think the game dev days, uh, I learned a lot. So after the UI, I wrote my own uh, both 2D games and uh, frameworks, but also uh, I switched to 3D and I did uh, game engines. And I did really a lot of things that I'm still proud of to this day, uh, even though like they were created more than 10 years ago. But for example, when I started doing C++, that was still the very old C++. There was no managed C++, which is a var variant you have now. And so I built my own reflection API for on top of the pure C++ language. And uh, it allowed me to create what you see is what you get editor with like 2000 lines of code. And um, you could do things like property grid. So you would add a class to the engine. You could select it in the editor and it would automatically query the information from the engine using reflection API. So things that, uh, you had available in Objective-C, I built that on top of C++ way wow. before I even heard about Objective-C. How old were you at the time? Um, that was before I, well, the 3D game engines, I finished before I finished high school. So mm -hmm. that was somewhere between the end of primary school and like the middle of high school, I think. I built so my own, uh, I built my own, shader generator so you had this node-based editor that would end up with uh, shader code it would generate code for you so the designers and people that are not technical could just connect different graphs and that would present that would compile into a source code that would be run on the gpu and display the effect like a like, cool kind of like quartz composer or like paint code yes. or something like that yes wow. way before that was a thing so before we jump too too far ahead, I want to go back to when you said you had a, a brother that was seven years older than you. He was uh, using what was it QBasic? I think you said um, Basic. Yeah, I think that basic. was even yeah the Basic uh, on, on the, the Commodore com on the Commodore. Right. Okay. Where like where was that your guy your family's computer or uh, that was his Commodore. He actually okay. sold it to me. <laughs> he didn't give it to me. He sold it to me. Wow. My lovely brother. Why did he, like, where did he get that computer? I mean, he bought it or whatever, but, like, why did he I think get he it? got it on the, um, how it's called in English. Um, like, in, when you are in second grade, uh, you get, it's not baptized, but basically, like, a religion thing. 
So he oh, got oh, the first communion. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, so he got it like we get a present on that in Poland. So oh. he got I think he got it for that. Do you know if like he asked your parents or whatever for it and they got him? Uh probably that's probably how it happened. So is that like uh, you know, I, I don't I don't really know, you know, 7 years older, you know, I don't know what time that was, but was that like a normal thing in like that area where you were living that kids just like had computers? I mean, was that like a uh, normal so thing or I hmm. Like, I, think, I wonder how he thought to, like, want a computer, you know, like, mm -hmm. was it? He, he probably was, like, he was very into electronics from the early ages, so he probably saw it in some magazine, I guess. Like, a lot uh -huh. of, like, back then we didn't have internet, so he couldn't, he couldn't see it on the internet. And uh -huh. uh, so I'm assuming either one of his friends had it, or he saw it on a magazine. I know he was buying those magazines that had source code written in it, so back in the day you had to actually type it. So you, you would buy the magazine and then you would have to retype the code from the magazine to your compi compiler. Wow. Yeah. Mm. Try making a mistake. So, okay. So your brother gets his computer, you're kind of checking it out and you're like, wow, that's cool. I want to do it too. And you start using his computer or you buy it off of him. Uh, so uh, the first, the first incentive was games. So we played a lot of games on Commodore. And I, I wanted to know how to create those kind of things. It's, that's like the creative part is what inspires me. Right. So uh, that's how I got into it. I really wanted to try it out. And I still, I remember seeing some of my old code a couple of years back. I, I found some old CDs. Uh, and that was code already after a couple of years of programming, right? So I looked at it and uh, <laughs> it was not a pretty picture. <laughs> wow. Wow. Okay, so how did you like, w did he end up sticking with computers or did you become the yes. like the okay he yeah, so yeah. he stuck with computers too? Is mm -hmm. is he is he uh, did he end up like doing the same going kind of a similar route or a different route? So uh, he did something else first. So he also got into game dev first, and okay. uh, so he did game dev for a while, but then he started working for a company uh, Alcatel. So he was working on like a yeah system. So did, uh, did you guys do build any games together or anything like that? No, 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 not really. Like we both uh, were self-taught and we uh, didn't actually cooperate. Like the the age difference when I was younger, that was a problem. Like seven years difference is pretty right. big. I have a brother so, that's also seven years older, so I know exactly yeah. how that is. So we weren't very close. We got closer as I like uh, had my. Uh, like 20 years when I was 20 or something, we got closer together again. But uh, when we were younger, it was hard because of the age difference. So we were both learning programming, but separately. So as you're starting to learn, you know, you're learning, I think you said QBasic and Pascal, mm -hmm. and then you're getting into gaming, like, you know, making these game engines and things. Are you doing this all by yourself or do you have like friends around you that are, you're also like into it together? Or are you kind of just doing this solo? No, I was doing it solo, yeah. Basically just wow. me. I don't think anyone in my school was interested in those kind of and things. And what about in school? Were there any classes? Were there any teachers? Anything like that? Uh, I had one teacher. Uh, but, I mean, the school level of IT was, uh, was never very impressive, especially in those early, early years. That was like 90s. So... <laughs> Like I very quickly was over the, like what the school could teach me. 
So oh, I had right. to research and uh, go to book, like go to bookstores and read everything that I could and experiment like a lot of experimentation. So that's where you most of the resources were, like at these bookstores or libraries. You were able to find yeah, yeah. the resources you needed. Yeah, without internet, it's kind of harder. <laughs> so. right. Okay, so then what what happens? You go to high school, you study, you go to college, you study computer science. Did you did you get a, like a degree in computer science? Yes, yes, yes. Uh, so I moved to Warsaw, and uh, I attended Polish uh, University of Technology. And I made uh, my bachelor degree in uh, basically um, how do you call it software engineering uh, design. So the how to project systems and how to make sure that they are scalable and everything else. But I mean, at that point, I was passing my exams on a like a Skype call. Like I had a C plus plus in a school in a college and. Uh, I never met the professor because I basically sent him my game engine source code and uh, he just uh, scheduled a five minute call on Skype. Uh, he asked me a few questions, I answered and he just gave me the highest grade and said, thank you. <laughs> wow. wow. Well, you know, when the professor asked who have written, like uh, how many lines of code people have written, so just to like query how, how people um, are familiar with programming and I'm like probably around a million lines at that level at that point so I mean it's kind of not the curriculum of college they don't expect people to come with like 10 years of programming so made it easy okay so you graduate from the you said Polish University of Technology was it yes Okay, and then what? Uh, what do you do? You stay in Warsaw. You move. You start a company. What do you do? So I actually started working full time. I think that was the beginning of the second year of college, and I pick up a full time job as a mobile developer. So uh, the first thing I was doing there was uh, the company called me, and they said because I was trying to get uh, my friend was working there. I was trying to get uh, the job, or I actually wanted to go just for practice to see how, how the mobile industry works. And uh, so they called me over the uh, Friday, I think that was Friday. And they called me and I come to the office and they say, so Samsung is doing this new phone called Samsung Bada. We don't have resources to look into the USB and the phone that they gave us. So we don't even know if it works, but if you can take it over the weekend home and play with it, that would be great. So I get this phone that no one ever saw. It's not public, like that was all uh, undisclosed but by that time. And so I, I canceled my plans for the weekend and I poured part of my game engine to that phone and I poured Box2D physics engine uh, as well because it was a different part, like it was C++, but it was a little different dialect. They had missed, They missed a lot of things. And I write a game in that weekend alone, uh, a game based on physics with a couple of levels. I write a trans like um, translator from Flash to C++ because I found a online editor in which you could create Box2D worlds, but it was generating Flash code. So I just translate that to C++. And I come back to the office on Monday. I show them the game. They go to Samsung with it, and Samsung asks, if they want to do 100 apps for them. 
Wow. And that's, that's how I got my job. Wow. That was the first, the first job, yeah. And so this was a, like a mobile development consulting company yes. that you were yes. working for. Okay. Why did Samsung approach this company? Were they already working with them? or I think they had some partnerships. But what was interesting, I was the first person uh, that I know of, that they knew of, uh, that was actually able to run uh, an app or on their phone. I was teaching the Samsung Research and Development Center how to run an app on their own phone. Okay, so in, is this phone like what we know of today, sort of like Samsung Galaxy phone? Like no, no. Android, so that was uh, so they had this system called Bada. Bada. Samsung Bada, yeah. Okay. And uh, they discontinued it at this point because it wasn't very successful. But that was basically C++ core. It was very fast. Like uh, the phone was pretty nice. But uh, you know, Android so it was came like along. Free Android. Okay. Wow. Yeah. Okay, so you impress these people at this company, and so you're working full time for this this mm -hmm. consulting company. Um, and and then, how long do you stay there? What do you do? So, so the first thing was, so we agreed to do. I think uh, we ended up agreeing to like thirteen apps or something like that for the Samsung. And I wrote, if my recollection is correct, probably nine of them, something like that. And they're and, not all uh, games. No, not all games. Yeah, okay. uh, six were games and three were like productivity apps or something like that. Okay. Uh, and I wrote it in two months. They weren't wow. very complicated, and they, my game engine made—I I literally made a game game every day, uh, wow. or every every two days maybe uh, for the bigger games. Uh, but you know, I had my own game engine that I wrote way before and just ported it, so I already knew it and it was already prepared for a lot of stuff, so made it easier. And after that, I uh, did one application on Android, which I don't like to talk about because it was Android. <laughs> <laughs> and um, I did well. I, the application itself was very cool because it was for a connected phone, like a Facebook phone. There were a lot of rumors that Facebook was working on a phone, and uh, that was basically a company from, from London that was very heavily integrated with social. And the thing I did for them had really very little to do with Android and everything to do with uh, UX and design. So. They basically wanted to have this um, unlock experience that was far better than what uh, iPhone had. So the slide to unlock, that's nothing. We had uh, icons underwater and to unlock, to jump to specific functions. So you had an icon for like the camera capture and you would drag the icon above the water and you had to drag it out and there was uh, like force feedback, so basically it wouldn't just move along your finger, it was like connected to a spring and you had to use a lot of force to drag it out. And this looks beautiful. So I did it and what's interesting about this is I did it using a known bug in physics engines. There's this thing called uh, continuous collision detection that by default is disabled. And that means that if an object moves fast enough, the force is strong enough, the object will jump uh, between uh, the start position and the end position, ignoring the collision in the middle, if if it's if it's fast enough, right? So basically, because it doesn't, if you don't have colli continuous collision, that means that it just does uh, frame jumps. So it's basically each frame just calculates how much the object moves, 
so if it's fast enough, it's just not gonna see the collision. <laughs> so I actually used that. So the the water was basically like a bridge of small elements connected together by a spring. And then when you drag an icon, you would attach a spring to the icon. And then as you drag, the force was increasing. So at some point, the force was so strong that the object would just jump between frames and it would appear on top of the bridge, simulating basically like a breaking of the water membrane. And it looked amazing, really nice. So that was on the Bada? Uh, that was on Android. Android oh, device. that was on Android. Yeah. They, I wonder, are we able to see that? Uh, is that, is that uh, forever? Or? I mean, there's, there are some YouTube videos. Uh, it was okay. called Cloud Phone. I can, I can look it up if you want. Okay. Cloud what? I think it was Cloud Phone, they called it. Cloud Phone. Okay, cool. All right, so we are coming to the 30-minute mark, and so I want to make sure we have enough time to talk about mm -hmm. all things Swift, but I want to do two things before we do, because you've been mentioning game engine a lot. And so can mm -hmm. you briefly kind of explain, like, I think I know what a game engine is. At least I know examples of game engines, like Unity, I think, is a game yeah. engine. Um, yeah. I don't know if Unreal is also a game engine. Yes. Yeah. Um, and then you have things like, like Gameplay uh, or GameKit, I think, like under GameKit somewhere is a game engine, mm. maybe? Well, so by game engine, what I mean is it's basically like a framework. It's a framework that makes it easy for people to focus on making the game, so the gameplay. So the gameplay kit is more about the gameplay rather than the technical details. So and, uh, and so, what are the things that are important to a game? The characters, the rules. Um, so whereas... when you are when you are making a game, you don't want to deal with how how the models are drawn. Like you don't care about the details, how the how the rendering happens, right? You only want to be able to say, okay, I want to see this model here. And I want to be able to move it to this position, or I okay. want to be able to uh, play music, or I want to be able to uh, simulate light and stuff like okay. that. So it's the technical okay. stuff. So right. that's the difference, right? So the, the gameplay kit is more about uh, like they do stuff like uh, AI, which is, can be part of the game engine, but doesn't have to be, depends on the game. But the technical details is like, how do you make light drop shadows and so all like that scene stuff. kit i think has that yeah yeah but it, like a game engine would be more complicated because it would require all the different domains so you'd have ai you would have physics you would have graphics you would have serialization all those stuff so it's basically like a like a, an app in itself and then you just focus on the what is the gameplay logic so what is so, the idea of the game not the technical detail but the I think there's a framework called Game Kit, right? With which has all the different things inside of it, like Game Play Kit, game, a Scene Kit, Sprite Kit, all that. Doesn't that all constitute like a, a game engine, or no? If you connect all of them together, it can. Yeah. Okay. Okay. I see. Okay. So, are you still using your game engine? No. 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 <laughs> okay. Do you still make games? Uh, I have an indie company when we create uh, apps. Well, it's kind of like a game, but it's educational for kids. Okay. So one of one of the apps is Foldify, which is an Apple Essential app, and uh, it allows you to proto. Basically, you can draw on paper, like on the on the iPad, you draw, and you can see the preview of how a folded piece of paper will look afterwards, after you print it and fold it. So you design your figures, like these 3D figures, on sheet of paper. And then from the app, you can you can uh, print it and fold it and put it on your desk, which is Whoa. very cool. Wow. Like origami? 
it's called CubeCraft because it's more complex than origami. It's uh, oh. 3D rather than, well, origami is like simplification of it. Wow, <laughs> crazy. Okay, so when you make uh, when you make games or like for instance Foldify, are you using your game engine or like Unity or? No, so uh, for those apps, I just wrote my own solution. Oh wow, 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 wow! Very, very impressive, Christoph. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so I want to get to the Swift section, but before we do, I just want to make sure: was there anything else you wanted to talk about? Like, I I know you're probably very busy, like. Uh, you know, working, doing your consultant work. Um, but I just wanted to make sure if there was anything else you wanted to, to, to that you kind of left out or is there anything else on that kind of subject before we move on to the Swift section? Uh, I think we are good. Okay, awesome. So Swift, moving on. Where were you when uh, Swift was released? It was uh, released June 2014. Do you remember where you were? Uh, I think I was here. I'm, I might have been at some conference. I, I kind of think that I might have been on some conference. I do a lot of speaking as a iOS developer. So uh, I remember being a little surprised. I wasn't sure if they were joking or they were serious. <laughs> but yeah, that was that was interesting time, especially like the first the first version of the language. So I read on your I read on your bio that you were doing iOS since 2008. So by that point, you were already, you know, doing iOS development for what is that like six years or something like that. Mm -hmm. So um, you were doing it sounds like you were doing Android. And then like, what, when did you move to iOS? I think oh, that yeah. might so, be interesting to talk about. That was basically the next project after that Android, I made a publishing platform for iOS. So basically a press publishing platform. That was my first iOS project when um, I think that was, um, well, first commercial, I actually wrote my first iOS app before there was an SDK for it. Uh, I got the, the first iPhone and I used the open toolchain. Back in the back in that day, you would have a Sigvin script that was like two screen long and you compiled it on Windows. And that was my first app. But the first commercial app was press publishing platform. So basically, um, that was used for a lot of picture books for children, like karaoke and everything. And uh, one of the biggest political magazines in Poland. Wait, and that's so how I started. Are you saying like you were doing um, like a jailbroken like type of stuff? That was, yeah, the first, the first stuff, yeah. yeah. Wow. I think I did it like I wrote first game after like a day after I had the phone. So I don't understand. How do you do that? You get the iPhone. There's not even an app store. You can only do web apps. Like, what do you yeah, do? I don't understand. Like, how Well, some you... smarter people than me did the open tool chain. So oh, there was okay. this they thing that you could that. use to hack it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I didn't hack the phone. <laughs> yeah, it's just incredible. I just don't understand how you even begin to do that stuff. So then they, the open tool chain had like a whole list, like a, like a documentation, and this is how you could use the open tool chain to develop for it. Well, there were some some information on the web, how you could deploy the code. I don't think there was a lot of documentation about the frameworks or anything like that. Wow. I think that was a lot of experimentation in the early wow. days. Okay, so you make this uh, photo book for kids, you said? Uh, so that was like a press publishing platform. So it was actually something that we sold as a product in the company that I worked for. Okay. And uh, it allowed you to create any content, uh, any press, related content. So you could, you basically use XML to describe books and pages of the books. 
and actually made it so you could make uh, events in XML, which was ridiculous. Uh, basically, one object could send events to another object, and we had this uh, requirement for the kids' books to have karaoke. So as the sound was playing, we would highlight specific sec sections of the text. Uh, so my my system for sending events was actually used to do that. So there was no code to do actual karaoke. There was only code to highlight a span of text, and there was a code to synchronize music. And basically, in XML, you could express how one triggers the other. Interesting. Yeah, that uh, was crazy. <laughs> okay, so are you writing? Like, what are you? What language are you writing at that point? Like, that's oh, you said that's that was objective. Oh, okay. oh, open toolchain was Objective C as well, I think. Yeah. Wow. Wow. Okay. So then, what was ago. like, what was like the first legitimate iOS app that you made once like the App Store came out? Yeah, that was the, the press publishing platform. That oh, okay. was the first okay. like commercial grade application. Okay. So then that means I mean you have all like all these years of Objective C experience, right? You're mm -hmm. at, you know like six at least six years of Objective C experience. Um, mm -hmm. Are you? When Swift comes out, are you still working with this um, consulting agency, or what time? At what point did you break off? No, no, I was already working with different different companies. Uh, I, hmm, that was yeah. I think I was contracting at that point already on my own. Um, yeah, yeah, that 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 kind of makes sense. And uh, because I were I actually moved to UK at some point, and I I was a lead developer in this. Uh, really nice agency called the App Business, and uh, after that I moved back to Poland and I started freelancing. And I think the the Swift uh, announcement happened somewhere around that time when I was moving back. Okay, so you have all this Objective C experience. You're doing uh, your consulting work, right? So it's uh, mm -hmm. you you know you have to keep that in mind that you're you know building these products sure. for your clients. And Swift comes out. What are you thinking that like? Did you just start learning it and, and playing around with it and start using it, or were you a little more conservative? What What did you do? So uh, I would say, like I evaluated it, but I didn't feel like the one point, whatever the version was, uh, was ready to be used in production. And I actually had things to deliver, so I only played with Swift in my spare time. Uh, for our old contracts, when people hire me, they want efficiency, right? So I had to work on Objective-C for quite a while. I did my side project in Swift to learn the language and be prepared for when I next next contract requires Swift. So you have a, you know, you have a lot of experience with lots of different languages. Um, mm -hmm. what, what are you doing mostly right now? Are you mostly doing Swift? Are you still doing Objective-C? Or are you doing projects? I mean, do you have projects that are across the board in other languages and other platforms? Mm -hmm. Or, well, so this comes back to what how you consider yourself. Whether you are a Swift programmer, whether you are like I don't consider myself a Swift programmer. I consider myself a programmer. I think programming is about problem solving. The language doesn't really matter. And if you are a good programmer in one language, you can learn another language or another technology without much fuss. And uh, I, right now, I work pretty much purely in Swift. I have some products uh, in Objective-C, but even new clients that come to me, like 99% of them are Swift. Like people jumped on that. And uh, at this point, I think 
it will be rare to get project like a consulting project with Objective C. So you probably you know you're doing Swift mostly because you're doing iOS, I assume, right? Like uh, that's yes. right. Okay. So, but one thing I'm I'm wondering is, and I think about it a lot, is like the new applications um, where Swift can be the tool, right? So we have server side Swift, obviously all the Apple mm -hmm. platforms. Um, and like what else you so uh, scripting like we can do some command line tools and scripting yeah. in swift like um do you have any thoughts on on that like where that might go um really the point i'm trying to get at is um as a swift developer like is it a good investment like to learn especially if it's your first language is it a good investment mm -hmm. to like learn swift i mean most likely you know apple's not going anywhere um but like, and then as what you just said, like if you learn one language, you can learn another. But like, what are your thoughts on that? So I think it's worth the investment. Uh, I think one thing, like uh, the first versions of Swift, I wasn't convinced like the first version, but since 2.0 upwards, it's a really nice language. I think Apple did a very good job. There are some things that we are still figuring out as a community because the language is evolving, but it's kind of interesting because you can get involved. If you have time, you can go to the mailing list and uh, listen to arguments and make your own. But uh, I think there is a push for the web version, so the Swift on the web. And like for there websites or, or server side? Server side, right? So right, server right. side, server side. I mean, you could do, you could do front end in theory, but I'm not like I'm not entirely sure uh, what's the um, state of union at this point because I'm not right. doing a lot of web development. But for the server side Swift, there are a lot of interesting frameworks and uh, a lot of people are contributing. And what I like about the language is it's rare that you can get involved into how the language is structured, how the language will look in the future because most of them are pretty mature. And this is actually something that you can make money on. So it's not like an experimental language, it's actually something that powers new apps and those apps are used by millions of people. So it's a very nice uh, community to be part of. Yeah, I'm glad to hear you say that because that's a perspective I really just can't have because I don't have years and years of programming experience. So for you to say like it's hard to find that, that combination of open source in the sense you can affect the language, but you can also make money, like have a living using the language, that's really interesting. Yeah. Um, okay, there's a few things I want to make sure we talk about, um, but before we do, I just want to ask really quickly, like, have you participated at all in the open source stuff? Like, even just, like, paying attention to it at all? Um, I've tried yeah. to, like, fix, fix bugs and stuff, but it, it just, for some reason, never happens. Like, I can never really figure out how to do it. Um, have you participated <laughs> at all in the Swift open source? Um, so, I'm keeping an eye out of whatever is happening, like, so the new proposals and everything else. And there is this Swift weekly brief, which is very, very right. convenient to have a, like a higher overview. I don't really like mailing lists. I wasn't involved in any of the discussions. I, when I discuss stuff, I just write my opinions on blog or share it on Twitter. And um, mostly because I actually do a lot of different work. So for New York Times, and I write my own articles, and I also open source a lot of code. So I kind of left without extra time to right. use, like if they were using like a modern communication, like a forum or something, maybe I would have more time, but like the mailing yeah. lists, the amount of 
the amount of uh, data you get if you sign up for that it's, it's really hard to yeah. do with all the other stuff happening yeah i wonder if they'll ever change change that okay and and, and real quick lastly uh before we move on um have you tried swift on the server at all uh i think i played with uh, swifter my friend wrote this uh, library before vapor was a thing oh, okay and cool. uh yeah, it's like a minimal, minimal um, server site thing. I can send you a link after. Okay, cool. I've cool. only played with it a little bit. It's definitely something I want to get into. Okay, so now what I want to do is move on to your open source projects. Um, this is actually kind of how we met. I like talking about how, you know, I meet the guests. We've technically never met in person or anything, but mm -hmm. um, you released what is now called Sorcery. Um, and and mm -hmm. actually, it could be interesting to talk about the whole the backstory with that, because before it was called <laughs> Insanity. Um, mm -hmm. and, and when you released it, it was like there was a lot of talk about it. Um, uh, okay, so, and then you, but you also have these other projects that I guess were even more, were already kind of popular, like Objective-C Playgrounds and stuff, but, mm -hmm. um, so I go on Twitter, and I'm seeing everyone's kind of like tweeting about this insanity thing, which is now called Sorcery, and why is that? So it's about metaprogramming, like what is metaprogramming, and why was there so much like uh, excitement around uh, a library for metaprogramming in Swift, like well, mm -hmm. what's going on there? So, uh Metaprogramming basically means that uh, you can write code to write more code for you. Basically, so like uh, automate allowing... the process of, yes. of code writing. Yes, exactly. So uh, there are patterns in different, like different languages deal with it at different level. The thing is, like languages like Ruby, which are very dynamic, uh, have beautiful metaprogramming abilities, but they are not type safe. They don't really leverage compiler because it's interpreted. So it's, it's a little different with Swift because it's a strongly typed language. Um, and because there are some limitations right now, the language is pretty new and there are limitations in how generics work and some of the uh, design patterns in Swift are still like changing. And there is a lot of boilerplate code that we have to write. So for example, if you work on a Swift project and you want to have equality and uh, hash values for your types, there's a lot of code that will be looking basically the same across different objects. So for each for each object that you want to add those properties to, you have to write the equals operator, and then the like 99% of those operators will just compare every property on one instance to the other instance, which is very annoying, right? It's uh, against the don't repeat yourself principle because it's the same pattern just with minimal changes applied across hundreds of objects so there is a lot of duplication and what, what's worse than the duplication is how easy it is to make a human error because if you remove a property you will get a compiler error if you didn't remove all the reference to the property right but if you add a property the compiler won't help you because an equality might not use a specific property it's not a requirement right so you you get bugs that are very hard to track and uh, it's basically hard to maintain those kind of boilerplate -y things. So the tool I created, the sorcery, is basically uh, it scans your source code using SourceKit, and uh, it generates. Uh, it also has you feed it templates like a, like a simplified Swift language, and from those templates it generates new code for you. So you can write a template that's like 30 lines long, and it will generate like 2,000 lines of pure Swift for you. 
Wow. And when you refactor your code, you add or remove properties, that will be automatically updated according to the template. So you'll never introduce those human, human error bugs. Man, there's just so many, so many questions I want to ask you about this. Okay, let me <laughs> see if I can remember all of my questions. So just to clarify for, for the listener, the example you were talking about with Equatable, the protocol Equatable, yeah. like, for instance, int and int, like you can compare two ints, right? Because I guess they sure. conform to the Equatable protocol. So you might say, like, is, you know, this age uh, equal to this age, right? And there mm -hmm. might be two ints, right? Uh, but then let's say you have some model object like a person or a user and you want to say, mm -hmm. is this user equal to this user? Well, you might have to make your user object, you know, let's say it's a struct, conform to the equatable protocol. And the equatable protocol says something like, you know, you have a function, I think, is equal and you just compare yeah. whatever you want. Left hand side, right hand side, you compare all those things. What exactly. one of the things you're saying that sorcery can do is write that for you. Now, uh, with let's say sorcery didn't exist but you could somehow you could do this like swift had this as a feature like how would that how would that happen like why why is it that some languages have this and some don't why is it why is it that people are very excited about sorcery um and, and like how could swift have this as a feature if, if sorcery didn't exist that's mm -hmm. what i don't understand so uh it's kind of interesting because i spoke with joe groff which is one of the Swift compiler engineers. And he said that he hopes that one day we will have this. So basically okay. automatically derived equality for all objects. So uh, there are languages that have it, like I think Haskell has. And uh, I mean, because it's the same pattern, you could just like, you could have that generated by the language itself, by the compiler. Uh, one thing that's important is you have to have an option to opt out. So you might decide that a property should not be used for equality because it might be like a, a computed property or it might be like a cache value that you don't care about. Uh, so until we have ability to somehow uh, be able to specify things that can be opt out, I don't think we can have an automatic opt-in like that. So there is something that they, they want to do from, for the language in the future, but it's probably not going to happen anytime soon. And so it would just be sort of doing something similar, maybe not the exact same way, but something similar to what Sorcery is doing, but it would just sort of happen automatically for you, like the compiler. So let's say I created a person struct, and a person has an age and a name, and as soon as the compiler starts running, it would generate the equatable sort of stuff behind the scenes. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Okay, so... Uh, why did you create this? Like, are you are you using this every day? And like, why did you create this? How did you? Because this? I, yeah, I think it's uh, it's one of those patterns that I see for on, in the different consulting uh, jobs I have. Uh, I see this pattern being repeated everywhere. So there are even when like because the thing is we want to write clean Swiss, right? We don't want to uh, write Swifty Objective C. We want to use the value types. We want to use pure pure language. And uh, because of that, there will be patterns that are repeated across different classes, across different modules. And uh, I personally feel bad when I see repetitions, mostly because if you have a bug in one of them, you have to remember to update all of the instances of that repetition. And that is another thing when humans make errors with. So you end up with less stable product. And what's important for me is 
that the code that I write for my clients is going to be good quality and it's going to be maintainable for years to come. So when I sell, there is like a lot of pain associated with those repetitions and it can be used for JSON, NS coding, all these different patterns that are basically the same, uh, just minimal variations per object. So uh, I thought like, how can we make it better? And I know that there is this thing that Xcode uses, which is SourceKit, and it parses your Swift code and it generates a syntax tree. So basically it sees that there is a class, there is a function, so you can use that to scan the data. And after that, uh, you can process that data and generate some new code. So that's how I approach it. I looked at SourceKit, which is a great framework around SourceKit. And I, I use Stencil, which is like a Swift-inspired templating engine, which we can use. And then I wrote uh, Sourcer, which binds the two together and builds on top of it with my own parsers, because SourceKit doesn't extract everything. like doesn't support uh, associated objects in enums and everything like that, like the more advanced parts. So I had to write my own parsing there. And this is working really nice. I mean, we are using it at the, the New York Times and I already seen a lot of people replacing their small tools with sorcery templates. And the um, feedback, you're getting good feedback. People are using yes, it in their Yes, very good it. feedback, yes. So you're using it every day? Yeah, well, wow. it's used as a build process, so yes. <laughs> Okay, so let's talk about that. Like, how does it work? So if I, let's say, I have a sample project, let's say it's kind of simple, and I want to use it to auto-generate the equatable thing for, mm -hmm. you know, all my, let's say I have like two model objects, like a person and sure. a car. Um, what do I do? I install Sorcery as a pod? Yeah, you just add pod Sorcery, and uh, you add a build phase, and in that bit falls, there is a sample line you can add. But you basically just reference the source uh, source directory, you just pass in the source directory to sorcery and the folder that you have templates in and where the output should be. And sorcery, which each build, it will scan your source code, run the template and generate the output. So then when I, when I build, I have to build, right? You said it's a build phase. So I, mm -hmm. I command B or whatever, I build. Then it'll generate that source code. So the next time I visit that file or right in front of me, that file will change and there will be new code yeah. inserted. So uh, wow. right now we generate it in separate files for safety. Oh, okay. uh, I am working on inline generation as we speak. Uh, I, I started working on it today. So we, we will be able to do inline generation, but for now it's a separate file. So you basically like extensions and stuff like that. Wow. Okay, uh, man. And then like the sor source kit, I don't know, it's so crazy. Like source kitten and, and this uh, Swift stencil or what's it called? Uh, stencil, stencil. Yeah, it's so like uh, this template engine thing, like. Man, when I was uh, checking out uh, Sorcery and like all the things you were using, it's just like, what is this guy doing? Like, this is so cool. Okay, I want to try it out, um, and and we're running out of time, so I, I want to move on. Okay, so you you release Sorcery, right? Oh, tell mm -hmm. us really quickly about the whole name thing because I guess I understand it, but I kind of want to hear you you talk. Sure. About. So it was first Insanity, and then now it's mm -hmm. Sorcery. Can you just quickly tell us a little bit about the the name change. Sure, sure. So I called it insanity because there is this famous quote, doing the same thing over and over again is the definition of insanity. Because, uh, sorry, it's, let me repeat that. Uh, what is insanity? It's doing the same thing over and over again and expecting different results, which is exactly what the repetitions are, right? The same pattern applied in hundreds of instances and like, why do we need to do it manually if it's always going to be the same? Right. 
And uh, some people uh, thought that this is uh, not a uh, very open language, which I understand, like that was never my intention. Obviously they come from the quote, but because a few different people raised it, I decided to change the name and people were so kind to contribute different different suggestions and sorcery sounded pretty cool. So we went Who with that. Who came up with sorcery? Uh, I, I would have to check. I don't remember oh, okay. exactly. Yeah, that that's a great name because obviously it's like source code, it's wizardry, um, you're using source kit. It's a really good name. Okay, uh, just to be a little clear, so it was like, it's kind of like a political correctness thing, but it's also, it was not really political correctness. It's more about like sensitivity because yeah. there's this uh, organization that defines all these names that are sort of negative names that we should sort of be mm -hmm. more sensitive or aware that we're using them and maybe not use them as much what was that or it's like a what's that organization it's like a website or something right uh so that that's like the insanity is from ablaze ablaze language and uh basically uh the idea is like and my idea is also like i want everyone to feel comfortable using the tools and contributing and obviously was never my intention to single out anyone um, but yeah, I mean, uh, I learned a new thing. I didn't know there's this thing called ablazm, and um, yeah, how that do you was spell insightful. It? Uh, a B L A I S. Uh, ablaze. Okay, okay. So I'll link to it. Yeah, and then so mm -hmm. I just thought that was really interesting. I thought that that conversation was interesting. I thought it, you handled it very well, and ultimately it worked out for the best because the name Sorcery is just really cool. Okay, mm -hmm. so anyways, you release Sorcery. People are really excited about it, this whole meta programming thing, which I'm still trying to wrap my head around. <laughs> and then, like, I don't know, it seemed like two days later almost, you know, you released this new uh, project called Traits, right? Mm -hmm. So uh, tell us a, a little bit about Traits. Um, and, and uh, yeah, tell us about Traits. What, what is that? So Trace is basically uh, a library that allows you to modify properties of your application remotely. So you can have a running application and you can tweak uh, different kind of properties. So it might be design, it might be some beta settings, but you can do it completely remotely. So it can be across the globe and uh, in real time, it reacts in real time as well. And it's a pretty simple pattern. It's basically like wrapping uh, functions along with their metadata and sending that over the network. And it makes it very easy to grow because functions are really simple to understand. So it's not a very complicated architecture, uh, but it's uh, like I did it as part of the Maker Week at New York Times. So we were trying to come up with ideas. How, how would we team the app if we wanted to be able to work with designers with uh, less overhead? So basically I would like to give the designer the app and let them tweak it to whatever they prefer it to look like. So change the fonts, change the colors, change the spacing. And so I, I designed this library. Wow. And so how long did it take you to, to do like the initial implementation? Two days. Wow. Okay. So obviously the next question is like, where do you get the time? Where do you find the energy? Cause like I was, 
this is actually one of the main reasons why I wanted to interview you was like, okay, you mm-hmm. release sorcery. Everyone's like going kind of nuts about it. And then like, it literally seemed like a couple days later you release traits. I'm like, wait a second, who is this guy? And like, how is he doing this? So like, where, where are you getting all this time and energy? Like, how, how are you doing this? Are you a superhuman? <laughs> I have a lot of, a lot of open source projects. I try to, you know, I try to open source things that can influence and help people, other developers. I think it's an amazing community and uh, it's a sacrifice. I mean, there are a lot of good developers that don't have active GitHub accounts and uh, you can never, like, you cannot really judge someone. Like you cannot tell that someone is a good developer because they have a lot of open source projects. You can say that someone might be a creative, but you never know whether they are a good developer or not. Uh, What I try to focus on is, like my portfolio is very visual. I try to contribute back to the community. I learned a ton from other people sharing their knowledge and experience for free. So I'm trying to give back. So I try to open source. I think I have 20 open source projects uh, and quite a few that are popular and uh, used in many, many apps. And I feel personally that this is my way of giving back to the community and sharing my knowledge and thanking the other people. Like, for example, Artsy, the team at Artsy has shared so many great things. And this this is my way of saying thank you and how I find time. Well, this is sacrifice, right? So I spend my personal time working on those things because I I have projects for other, like for clients. That's the priority. When I have some time off, I spend it trying to solve bigger problems, problems that affect not just a single app, but actually multiple apps. And this is how my tools come to be. (laughs) Well, yeah, I mean, just I I haven't had a chance to use either of them, but from the reaction I saw and then just the the presentation, like the way your readme looks, like obviously you you care a lot and... um, so I, I'm I'm assuming it's they're they're very useful, really well done um, projects. Uh, so yeah, just good job, congratulations, and like thank you uh, so much you. Uh, for 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 doing that. And I think it's um, uh, people people like you that are in the community and like everyone together, like you said, artsy. It really makes it like uh, just an awesome awesome community, and I love I love being a part of it. Um, okay, so just a couple things. We're at the hour mark, but I just want to touch on a couple things if you don't mind sure. real quick going back to uh sorcery the is that written in swift like uh it's like a swift sort of script that sort of it's a build phase right so it's, it's a, it's a mock-up or, it's, oh it's, it's a, a mock-up yeah yeah but it's uh, so it's you know it's a command line tool but it's packaged as a mock-up because uh, swift uh, command line tools are not working very well yet in xcode basically okay. they have problems embedding frameworks so i made it as an app and then I distribute it as a, a command line tool. So it's, it's meant to be command line tool. The, the technical details is uh, windowless uh, mockup. Uh, okay. Like a menu item it, or something? Well, no, it's just like literally just executed once and killed. Oh, okay. And there is no UI that ever appears, right? So it's okay, like okay. treated as a command line tool. I think uh, going back to your mention of like usefulness, I think sorcery is going to be industry standard for Swift metaprogramming. A lot of people are switching to it. I have a lot of people contributing, which I'm very thank- thankful for because uh, it makes all the difference. And the other things like the Objective-C Playgrounds that I did, all those things I think can save you tens of hours. And 
not only that is that money because when you work on like a contractor that's money but it's also time you can spend with your family and working on new ideas and other cool stuff so i think those are the things that you should be using uh, or at least you should evaluate because it's up to everyone to decide but right i think it's it's worth it's worth using no i definitely want to take a look um at it and start seeing if we want to use it at work for sure okay just a couple quick things before um before we go so going back to traits really quick um so basically what it does is it replaces like hard-coded values with like these functions and then you can insert values over the network. Is that sort of what you're saying? So it's like a, it's kind of two things. Uh, so first of all, it's a central repository of different traits of your UI or application logic. So you can have stuff in the interface builder, like a UI in the interface builder and you can have UI in code and the big problem that people often face is where is that defined? So uh -huh. sometimes it's in code, sometimes it's in the interface builder, whereas if you use trace, you would have it in a central place, a central repository. And as an extra feature, that repository can be changed remotely from your, like you can have running device and you can change it remotely. Just like, by, where would uh, you, like where would you change it? Uh, like how, let's say a designer wanted to change the font size to 15. Like sure. Where do they actually physically go to change it? So they can just put a file in their Dropbox and just set the app to use that URL, and then wow. it will load all the resources, all the setup from that file. And is this something that you would use just for beta, like or de or like a building, like development, or would you, oh, you use can, it in production? So you too? can use it. You can use it in production. I mean, there's no nothing magical about it, really. Wow. It's just okay. functions with some metadata. Okay. Wow. Um, oh, and then Objective C Playgrounds. That's basically Playgrounds, but for Objective C. And Swift, yeah. It actually and works Swift. in both languages, so, so and it's much easier to integrate than Swift Playgrounds. So, like, what it's it's providing extra features, or uh, what what is it? Is so, it, is uh, it, is it it's using code Playground? injection. It's, okay. No, no, it's, it's so you basically add a pod to your application, and you install Xcode injection app. And uh, at that point, you can show the playground UI, and you can work on your own classes. So the the big problem with uh, Apple Playground is that it's hard to integrate existing apps into them. So you, to be able to iterate on your own code, it's a little complicated. Whereas I created that two years ago, and it not only works with Objective C but also Swift. Both languages can be used, and it's very easy to integrate. And it has bunch of uh, nice DSLs so you can expose a variable as a uh, basically you specify this is adjustable variable and it shows you a slider that you can just drag you can deploy them to devices so you can do you can work in playground in real time so without having to recompile the whole project you work on your UI or UX and uh, when you are finished you can make an app out of it just straight there make an app deploy it and send it to your teammates and they can play with it. Wow. Okay, so like let's say there's a class in my existing project. Yeah, I have like mm -hmm. 5,000 files or something. It's an existing class. Sure. Rather than, and I wanted to kind of play around with this class, rather than like opening up a playground and maybe copying the class over or I don't know, something like that, you're saying I could sort of open up Objective-C playgrounds with that class somehow, like with that project somehow? Is that what you're saying? Yep. So basically, uh, Objective-C integ playgrounds integrate, well, cases playgrounds, they integrate with your project. So you just set a pod 
and then you can just instantiate the view controller for the playground and it shows up and all your classes are available. Wow. 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 Okay. I got to try, <laughs> try this out. Yes. Okay. Okay. All right. So I promise we're like almost at the end, but I keep just thinking <laughs> about more things I want to ask you, but let's like, we really are going to end. But uh, I mentioned uh, early before we started, like I kind of wanted to ask you about your Twitter profile picture. Uh, you're standing <laughs> with your arms stretched out. You look so happy. Uh, you're standing by the water. Like, what's going on there? Oh, that was from a trip with my girlfriend. Uh, oh, right. We went to a city near the sea, and it's just a really nice day. <laughs> so what, I was, uh, um, uh, I think that was Gdańsk, which is Gdańsk. in Poland as well. Yeah, Gdańsk. Okay. Gdańsk. Yeah. Okay. That name sounds <laughs> familiar. Do you know uh, Radek Petru Petrushevsky? Yes. Piet Pietrushevsky? Yes, yes. yes. Okay, cool. Yeah, I feel like he mentioned that. Anyways, um, okay. So let's see. I think that's pretty much it. But actually, this I promise is sort of like the very, the very uh, last. Well, there there might be like two sort of sign off questions, but this is like the last like real question. Sure. I'm just the the thing I'm thinking about is like, you sound like a very very smart, capable um, programmer, um, and I I'm sure there are a lot of people. Uh, who are either the same, like similar to you or aspiring to be someone like you, and they're living in their respective like home countries. Mm -hmm. But uh, to me, I, it seems like um, there's like, at least in the US, there's like a big like um, desire to like move out of your home and move to the big city and, and, mm -hmm. and do all this, make it and become, you know, join a startup and stuff like that. But um, I feel like, uh, I've interviewed a few people who who don't have that mindset. Who they, they they just they love where they live and they want to stay there. Mm -hmm. But even though when I'm looking at them, I'm thinking about them like, man, you could like move to San Francisco and get paid like millions of dollars probably to like work for some startup or something like that. Like, do you mind talking a little bit about obviously not the money part, but like talking about what that is because because there might be people out there who are struggling with the same question, like, do I leave my home or do I move? Mm -hmm. And like, what, what is, do you mind talking a little bit about that? For sure, me? sure. Like, what keeps you at home? So I lived in the UK for a year and a half, and I think the experience itself is worth it. So if you never lived abroad, even moving for a year and seeing how you feel can open you to different perspectives and you get, you know, it's, it's nice to be exposed to different um, nationalities, people have different mindsets, and it's it's very interesting. As you, it just makes you grow as a person, and I think that matters a lot. And uh, when it comes to like, w are you willing to reallocate to San Francisco? Uh, honestly, I mean, it, it would be hard for me to justify doing that. I own my own flat here in Poland. I have a lot of friends here that I am very close with. I travel a lot already as a speaker um, because I try to share my experiences with people. So I have friends in all different parts of the world, which I am very uh, honored by having those friends. And uh, whether I would be willing to move, it's a little like for me, it's a bit problematic because I don't have a visa. So I would have to move probably to UK or work remotely for a year before I get a visa. And only then I could move to US but I'm not that tempted. Like I wouldn't move for money. I don't think that that would be 
like a reason for me. I think if I were I, I were to move, that would be for the opportunity. And by opportunity, I don't mean working for a big company. I think about like solving something important, like an right. important problem or working on something that can touch lives of a lot of people. So that might be working with Apple, for example, in like DevTools, but uh, it's not the name. Like it's not the name of the company that matters. Right. It's more it's about what you're going like, to build, what you're going to create, yeah, the impact yeah. you're going to make. Yeah, exactly. I think that's I think that's a good point. So setting aside all the like real, the realistic, the realities. So like you know Visa or whatever. Setting those aside, ultimately, it sounds like it kind of comes down to like what drives you, uh, mm-hmm. and like what do you want to create. And I think that that we're we're starting to live in a world where that is location independent like you can live in south africa and make the same impact that you can make living in los angeles right some companies want you to be there but i think um over time that's gonna that's gonna change so if you're listening and you're thinking about whether or not you need to like move i mean yeah ultimately it comes down to like what what the opportunity is and like what what Mm -hmm. uh what you want to do what drives you and like what your goals are um yeah, I don't know. It's there awesome. is but, one note I can add if you want yeah, about please, that please. because working remotely is specific, right? A lot more and more companies are switching to be remote friendly, uh, but still a lot aren't. And I think it's mostly the misconception that, like, some people think that if you hire a remote person, they are not going to be productive because they have distractions in home. Whereas, uh, like, as an example, I do a lot of work at New York Times and uh, all the other companies I worked in the past, I was always one of the most contributing person because I don't get distracted. Like the, the people that get distracted are people in the offices, all the meetings, all the interruptions, especially with the like open floor plan, right? That's problematic for developers. Yep. Whereas at home, I control my environment. I have my own office. I design my own hours. I design my own habits. And I work in the hours that are most productive for me. When you control your own hours, different people have different hours that they are most productive on. Like some people prefer nights, some people prefer early mornings. Uh, Office doesn't help with that. So it's hard to do that in the office because everyone has to be at the same hour more or less. Whereas when you are remote, you can control your hours, which means the company pays the same amount of money, but they get better performance out of you. So... Hopefully in the future, more companies will do it. But if you are self-organized, you have to be self-organized. If you are self-organized, I think you can be one of the most productive team members if you're remote. Here, here. I love it. Okay, so uh, again, this, this could go on forever because I'm just really <laughs> having a good time talking with you. Um, but I promise uh, these will be like the last, unless you, there's anything else you want to say. Um, okay, real quick, get from the command line or get... Uh, uh, GUI, Git, or, or no, <laughs> both, both. both. Ooh, both. Yeah. Okay. Um, if people want to, or uh, do you mind if people contact you online? And like, what's the best way to to get in touch with you? Probably the easiest is my Twitter or via my website contact form. But Twitter is probably the fastest way to contact me. So Merowing underscore. What's the story be- uh, behind me rowing? Is that like me like uh, rowing a boat or? No, no, it's, uh, there's, well, that was like, I was a kid when I did it. It's either Merovingian Dynasty or it's the Matrix movie. <laughs> oh, Merovingian. Oh, so yeah. that's how you, that's how you spell it? Mero, Meroving? 
Yeah. Well, knowing is Merovingian. I don't. I'm not sure. Like the spelling of the dynasty is more complicated, but yeah. I mean, the name so many years ago. I just wanted a nickname. Are I ended you, up with this. Are you a part of the Merovingian di- uh, dynasty? No, no, no. It's just not related. <laughs> <laughs> okay, and um, the very last. Uh, a question or sort of a question is one piece of advice for people learning Swift. Go. Perseverance. You have to have perseverance and it's programming language. I mean, the things at the beginning are hard. There will be things that you don't understand yet. And that happens even to experienced engineers. When we are learning new technology or new language, we might not get the full comprehension of what we are doing. But give it time, persevere, and at some point you realize it's simple. Everything is hard before it becomes simple. I love it. Perseverance. I totally agree. All right, Christoph, thank you so much for coming on the show today and sharing your story with us. You know, starting programming, uh, you know, when you were eight, like with, uh, I think it was like QBasic and then learning Pascal and like, making your own game engine before you graduated high school uh, and like continuing with gaming and then like going to university and basically like passing all your classes without even having to go to them because like you already knew what you were doing and you just like sent your professor like your source code to your game engine and you just like had a five minute Skype call, (laughs) uh, you know, and then like uh, getting out of, you know, graduating university and joining that, uh, you know, Polish consulting company, working on that Baba Samsung thing where I think you like made a game over a weekend and then they were like, Mm -hmm. wow, like you guys should make a bunch of stuff for us. And then uh, eventually making an iOS app when the iPhone came out using like the, what was it? The tool chain, the open, yeah, tool open chain. Tool chain. um, and then making that like baby photo album, press, press publishing platform, something like that. And then, uh, you know, eventually starting your own, uh, you know, company and then Swift comes out and then now, you know, you're just a really big part of the Swift community with all your open source projects, including, you know, object to see playgrounds and sorcery now traits like i don't know how you find the time to do it um, <laughs> yeah so and then you're doing conference speaking too i really look forward to mm-hmm. maybe meeting you one day at a conference who knows maybe in europe uh this this <laughs> uh, spring or this summer and uh yeah i mean in the writing that you do i saw that you had an article uh, about testing which i was reading i want to continue reading that yeah i mean it's just we're so blessed to like have so many amazing people in our community and so thank you for being one of them and yeah so thank you so so much Sure. You can actually see some of the projects that I talked about in my portfolio if you go to my website. And including those projects from like high school and primary school, all of them have some screenshots there so you can you can take a look. It looks pretty cool. I think the community is what drives me. Like I feel this is why I decided to stay with Apple and back in the day Objective-C. It's just amazing, amazing community and so many people smarter than me that are sharing knowledge for free and it just makes you feel welcomed and it's it's really tight community. I really like it. I agree. I agree. All right. Well, thank you so much and I look forward to speaking with you again soon. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And that's the show, ladies and gentlemen. I hope you enjoyed listening to the Swift Coders podcast. 
feel free to share the show with a friend, leave a review on iTunes, or recommend us on Overcast. If you have any questions, comments, or just want to say hi, contact me on Twitter. Until next time, go swiftly, my friends. Thank you.